In bureaucracy, what is created are what he called the internalization of sub-goals. So you take goals like HUD meeting on the ground or Pepsi putting the stuff on the shelves, and the goals become internalized within the structure. So nobody's thinking about that end goal. They're thinking about internal sub-goals like, what do I do for a promotion? Am I going to get a bonus this year, et cetera? But they're not thinking in terms of, what did I do today to advance our purpose on the ground? So I don't think it's radical at all. It's just an interpretation of the way big organizations actually work. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast and episode number 92. And that is with Henry Cisneros, the Honorable Henry Cisneros. And what a pleasure it was to talk to Mr. Cisneros. You know the name, uh, 1992, President Clinton appointed Henry Cisneros to be Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. And he was a member of President Clinton's cabinet and played a huge role in initiating a variety of revitalization plans for public housing development helped ensure or create some of the highest ever home ownership rates in the country. And he was also President Clinton's chief representative to the cities, the nation's cities, which is really the unit where action happens, right? He personally worked in more than 200, imagine that, 200 U.S. cities in every one of the 50 states while he was in President Clinton's cabinet. So it's really great to be able to talk to Henry in this episode of the SIDCast. He's involved in all sorts of things now, but he really built his career as a mayor. And he was the first Hispanic American mayor of a major U.S. city in San Antonio, Texas. And he was a four-term mayor. And he helped rebuild the city's economic base. He was involved in massive infrastructure, downtown improvements, creation of jobs. And he was such a high profile. He was even interviewed at one point to be vice president on the Democratic ticket in 1984. And he won awards like the Outstanding Mayor of the Year and worked in finance and urban development after stepping down as mayor and not long before being appointed by President Clinton to lead HUD. He also was the president and COO of Univision Communications, which is the Spanish language broadcaster that has become the fifth most watched television network in the whole country. And he was on the board of directors as well. The list of honors and positions and nonprofit activities that Henry Cisneros has been part of is very, very long. And I include them all in the show notes so you can take a look. He's written books as well has always valued education. He actually holds a doctorate in public administration from George Washington University and has actually been awarded more than 20 honorary doctorates from leading universities. He's really been a mainstay of not just San Antonio, not just Texas, but really the country when it comes to the role of cities and how to manage cities and also the Hispanic American community and really has been one of the leaders. And, you know, today when you look at President Biden's cabinet and some of the key players there, there are some important people there that I think can share all sorts of ties with Henry Cisneros. Henry was something of a mentor and a benefactor and even a super boss for many people. 
So really a tremendous career. And I have to say that Henry's our first cabinet secretary that we've had on the show, or at least past cabinet secretary. It's actually kind of interesting. We have had other people in politics, Jake Sullivan, for example, who is now President Biden's national security advisor. We had him on before he was appointed. And now we have Henry Cisneros years later after he was in President Clinton's cabinet. And we had, you know, such a freewheeling, great discussion I often say as we near the end of the hour or so that I wish we had another hour and it was never more true than it was in this case with my conversation. The sitcast is a little bit like a buffet, you know what I mean? We talk people and careers, talk about leadership, talk about mistakes made, decisions made, lessons learned. But we also talk about parents and children. We talk about paths taken and not taken. And we talk about who we are as people. And all of those aspects of the buffet if you will, are in play here today in this episode. Let me share with you three of those particularly appetizing plates that were on the buffet table in this episode with Henry Cisneros. Number one, why Texas will not turn blue. There's a lot of discussion about that. And of course, in the last presidential election, there was a pretty big shock in Georgia, especially when you look at the two senators that were elected, both Democrats. And a lot of discussion for some time has been, you know, will Texas become Democrat? And Henry Cisneros, who is certainly a die-in-the-world Democrat, has some big doubts. And the reason he has doubts is because he really understands Texas and people there. I think I asked him, well, aren't there so many people moving to Texas from, you know, places like California? And he said something like, yeah, they're the ones that can't stand the high taxes in California. He also notes that some of the poorest counties in the state actually voted either for Trump or partially for Trump. And why was that? These were Latino communities, but they were made up of small business people. They were very religious, a lot of evangelicals. They were hunters, they were pro-guns, and the Republican platform appealed to them. There's even this old story that Henry shared when he was in a limo with Ronald Reagan, President Reagan in the 80s, and they were talking about Texas and Hispanics with respect to political preferences. And Reagan told Henry that Hispanics are Republicans, but they just don't know it. And he was referring to family values, to faith, to small business. And it turns out Reagan was maybe a little bit more right than wrong. And that's a really interesting discussion whether you like the punchline or not, a really interesting discussion about politics in Texas and the demography of Texas and particularly the Hispanic community. Number two, entrepreneurial thinking in politics. Henry got a lot done as a mayor. And the way he put it and the way that, you know, I kind of took away from the conversation is that there's no democratic way to pick up garbage. There's no Republican way to pick up garbage. You either do it and you do it well or you don't. At a local government level, city level, it's getting the services done that people expect, that people need, that counts much more than broad-range political preferences and partisan politics. That's not true everywhere in the country, maybe, but it's more true than not. And entrepreneurial thinking is needed in politics, and Henry is the right person to talk about that. He said, you know, rather than put traditional labels on things you want to do that are conservative or liberal, think about a way to frame it. Frame the debate a little bit differently. Start with practical solutions that will help people. Those are things that he's done across the lines and certainly in Texas and has done it with tremendous success. And so I kind of like that idea. I don't think we see nearly enough of this politicians or in the political arena actually thinking the way an entrepreneur would think. Maybe it's kind of laughable that I'm even connecting these terms, but Henry made me think a lot about that. And I think that part of our conversation in this episode of the Sitcast will also help you think about this a little bit differently as well. And then number three, it was fun to listen to Henry talk about Clinton, Biden, Obama, FDR, Ronald Reagan. He's a real student of the presidency and of America. 
And of course, he has had a first row seat on President Clinton's cabinet and certainly with President Obama, President Biden and others. There's one little example. He said that Clinton and Obama had much more in common with each other intellectually than typically realized. For example, either one of them could hear someone's point of view, maybe something they hadn't thought about exactly that way before. They could just hear it in a few seconds and then they can get up to give a speech and they could integrate that point of view and convey the essence of that point of view even better than the person that kind of shared it with them in the first place, which is quite a tremendous skill. And that was really a fun part of our conversation as well. There's lots more that we talked about. As I said, it was a real honor and a pleasure to talk to Henry Cisneros, to have him on the sitcast. And I know you're going to enjoy this episode. So here is the Honorable Henry Cisneros. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Secretary Henry Cisneros. Hi there, Henry. Hello, Professor, and thank you for inviting me. And more importantly, thank you for doing a podcast that informs people beyond the classroom or beyond their daily lives by asking insightful questions and providing information. I appreciate that. I've been looking forward to this conversation once we knew it was going to be happening. So I've already shared with our listeners a little bit of your history, your resume, the things you've done. But I want to start at the beginning and maybe give some glimpse into, you know, how did this all happen? I grew up on the west side of San Antonio, which is the Hispanic barrio, if you will, of San Antonio, Texas. And how would you characterize your family in terms of professions or middle class, upper class, lower class? What were they doing? What do your parents do? We were the beginnings of the Mexican-American middle class. My father had served in World War II, came back from the Pacific where he served four years and recovered from malaria that he acquired there. Met my mother, whose father had a print shop in the community, very close-knit family, and they fell in love and were married. Bought a home directly across the alley from my grandparents. So we grew up in a very, I've often said it was a Norman Rockwell existence except all of the faces were brown. (laughs) Very Hispanic neighborhood, very patriotic, a lot of civil servants, a lot of World War II veterans, but with a very proud Latino tradition. Right. That's great. I think about how nice that must have been for the grandparents to have kids right uh, across the street, basically. That's as good as it gets. So you have siblings? I am the oldest of five. My parents were very, very keen on education. My father actually pursued community college while we were growing up. We'd go to college in the evenings, and my mother was unusually well-educated for a Latina in that era. She went to the University of Texas during the war until she had to come home to help her father, my grandfather, with his growing print shop, but she was always committed to education. And as a result, my parents got all five of us through college on a civil servant salary. Do you think that an equivalent family could do that today? Well, I think families do. I think it can be done. It requires an extraordinary level of focus. I remember when we used to spend Sunday afternoons, quote, looking at houses. We'd drive through neighborhoods and my parents would dream about moving on to the growing parts of the city. And I also remember the Sunday night when they sat down and had a discussion and concluded that as much as they would like to have a larger house and a more modern house, that the more important thing was to save their money and put us through college. So it took a lot of focus and belief in education. Our family has almost a kind of a secular faith in education. Isn't that kind of the story of so many families that maybe don't necessarily start with a lot and just makes all the difference? And you see with successive waves of, I could say, immigrants. Well, it's true. Correct. That's the correct word. Because you've seen it, you know, with immigrants, well, all kinds, but certainly we saw it for decades with Jewish immigrants. We see with Asian immigrants. 
African-Americans as well. I just listened to Colin Powell, who's a friend of mine, describe his background, and it was very similar in that mm. respect. And Lee Brown, who was Secretary of Commerce when I was in the Clinton administration, grew up in Harlem, similar kind of family ambitions and push. So the combination of education, that patriotic belief that the country could serve us well if we worked for it, and and then also just natural family ambitions. My grandfather had a print shop that he grew into what was the largest union print shop in the city. I worked there. Where I'm sitting today is in that print shop, which I refurbished and turned into my national investment office. Wow. That's got to feel pretty good, actually, doesn't it? Either it's a sincere indication of my desire to help the older Latino neighborhood that I live in, or I haven't gone very far in the world, one or the other. <laughs> well, I'm thinking when you share that, that the walls are speaking to you with history, with your family Absolutely history. Absolutely correct. And that, I use those words. Do you? Yeah, that would make me feel pretty good, actually. Now, Bernie Sanders talked a lot about free education. And I want to know what you think about that, because we know, you just made the point, education is the difference maker. We are getting closer to free education, at least in this community. The San Antonio Community College system called Alamo Colleges effectively has the ability to offer free education through scholarships and other structures, including things like negotiating with the transit company to offer free bus rides to school. This is a community that really has bought into education as the way to break poverty and as the way to create the pathway to the middle class. When I was mayor of San Antonio, we created something called the San Antonio Education Partnership, which began with the six poorest schools in town, and now it's virtually every high school in the city. But basically, the promise was, if you can achieve a B average in your last two years, you can learn your way in your freshman and sophomore year, but the last two years, if you can achieve a B average and you attend 95%, so you're not, you know, sloughing off, you will have the money you need to go to college, at least the community college, maybe not Dartmouth, but at least the community college. That's now a fully operative commitment in San Antonio. Yeah, that's interesting because that's a local solution and energy as opposed to Senator Sanders who wants to legislate that nationally. Well, and that would be great, and I would support that. But, you know, to the extent that things are not happening at the national level for reasons of partisan stalemate or for reasons of deficit concerns, I believe cities, and this drove my work as mayor, can be masters of their own destinies, can be self-reliant entities, and do things of that nature that they know they need for their goals. Yeah. There's a couple of threads I want to connect from what you just said. There's a very interesting subtlety when you mentioned the bus fare for kids going to community college. So, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, we'll pay for your education, but then there's some things people don't always think about. How do you sure. get there? How are you going to have enough money so they could afford the time to go there? Of course, most people Correct. probably work part-time. It's Correct. almost like an ecosystem thing. And even kids that go to places like Dartmouth, even if they're in full scholarship, there are other expenses. Sure. And well, you're absolutely right. And the community colleges, in my experience, are a very underappreciated educational resource. People look down their nose at them, but they're the entryway to a better life for countless millions across the country. And they need to be supported and we need to make that pathway easier. And then maybe the next generation or maybe graduate school includes Dartmouth. Well, that would be great. Let's go back to your upbringing a little bit. What did you want to be when you were a kid growing up? I don't know if that well, a lot of people say, I want to be mayor. I don't know if that's what people say. Fire. <laughs> well, I, I, you, I would have never been the one that they would have selected from the playing ground. 
and said, that's a future mayor. That was not very likely because I was shy and I was smallish and was not, you know, the first to speak up in public settings. But for the longest time, I thought I wanted to be a pilot. I might have considered being a doctor and I might have considered being a priest. But frankly, the turning point for me on a career choice, which, by the way, has been very durable. What I started doing in 1968, I am still doing today. That is basically working in urban America, working on urban issues and government and investing in cities. But 1968 was the turning point. It was my senior year in college. And if you look back, there are three books I have on my bookshelves all about the year 1968. It was probably one of the more tumultuous years in American history until 2020, which I think equaled it in trauma and change. But 1968 was the year that started with the Tet Offensive. It basically said the Vietnam War was not winnable. And then President Johnson stepped down the next month and said he would not seek the presidency. Meanwhile, there were Vietnam War protests and serious riots in the streets. Then in April, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. That caused the cities to burn for a different reason. Then in June, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated after having won the Democratic primary in California that night. Later, the Democratic Convention turned into a police riot and there was bloodshed in the streets of Chicago. And we went on through the year in that way with the tumultuous presidential election, rioting, Vietnam protests. There are reasons why books are written about that particular year. It was in that year that I concluded that though my life had been directed by my father's influence to serve, And I wanted to do something in my life and in my career of service that didn't include necessarily the formal establishment ways of service, being in the military, being in the foreign service. But I fell in love with the notion of helping build the cities. John Lindsay was the mayor of New York, attractive, charismatic mayor. I thought, my goodness, that's exciting. So I proceeded into graduate school in urban and regional planning got a scholarship to go to graduate school in urban and regional planning at Texas A&M. And that was the sort of shaping new direction for me. Subsequently, went to Washington to graduate school at George Washington University, but worked at the National League of Cities full-time while going to school full-time. And there I got to see the mayors of that era. Mayor Daley from Chicago was in the city to work on federal partnerships The mayor of Cleveland, Carl Stokes, the first African-American mayor of a northern city and of a major U.S. city, and I was able to meet him. Mayor D'Alessandro of Baltimore, who is the brother of Nancy Pelosi. She learned her politics with her brother, who was mayor, who succeeded his father, who was mayor of Baltimore. And I really fell deeply into the conviction that The cities were where we could make a change and really alter the course of American society. And my whole life since school, graduate programs, city council, mayor, secretary of HUD, investment practice has been in that field. We talk on the SIDCAST a lot about careers and transitions. And you're saying something really interesting, which is that the landscape was the same. It was the city. But the actual activities that you've done over time have been different in some fundamental ways, but it's still the same landscape, which is really kind of interesting. So what does it take to become a mayor? I mean, how did you, I know you were a city councilor first, right? But how did you break through to the CEO's office? As I said earlier, I didn't see myself in politics, but 
I went to Harvard to the Kennedy School and did a master's degree in public administration. I also had finished my doctorate at George Washington or was working on the dissertation while I was at the Kennedy School and ended up writing about Boston public policy, particularly economic development. It was just a new field in cities. Cities were generally not thought of as places that you could influence jobs and wages, economic progress. The role of a city government was pick up the garbage, provide police, water, sewer. But the field was just burgeoning and Boston was a leader. And to me, that made all the sense in the world to deal with a poor city like San Antonio using the powers of the municipal government to create opportunities to open up doors. So I returned to San Antonio from Boston, taking courses at MIT, etc., with a bag full of knowledge about labor markets and economic development and urban land use, etc., and was recruited to teach at the University of Texas at San Antonio new campus of the University of Texas system. I was maybe the 40th employee in what is now a 30,000 student university. And my students are the ones who said, you know, you're teaching us this material, but we need somebody applying it right here in San Antonio. We'll be your campaign if you'll concede to run. And my grandfather and parents and uncle encouraged it. And I ended up running for city council at 27 years of age and became the youngest council member in the city's history, did that for six years and ended up being a very different person than I had been. Because as I said, my temperament was generally tended toward traditional solutions and a quieter voice, a mediating voice. But what I found in the practices of the city government was so antiquated, so unfair, so unjust that I just couldn't abide it. And I ended up quite against my own nature, being a firebrand populist city council member. And it catapulted me into such a profile that it was a logical thing to do to run for mayor six years later. I served on the council three two-year terms, a total of six years, and fought the utility companies when they raised rates on people and fought the water system when it gave developers big grants to build in the suburbs at the expense of poor people from the city paying the bills and fought for the telephone company when it was raising rates for growth, but at the expense of senior citizens and actually had some success in changing policies. I teamed up with the local community-based groups, and we developed this mantra, which basically asked the question, who benefits and who pays? And we found a vast, vast gulf between who was benefiting from policies and who was paying for them. It was so incredibly unfair. I'd never before in my life expected to be standing in my office and have an 80-year-old poor Hispanic woman on a fixed income come to me and say, Mr. Cisneros, please help me. Here's my utility bill and here's my medical prescription. I can't afford both. Which should I do? Knowing full well that without the prescription, she would get only more sick and without the heating bill, she would get sick. Those were the kinds of choices that seemed to me so unfair that as I say, it vaulted me into a role where six years later I ran for mayor and was elected with strong support, not only among Hispanics and African Americans, but even in the prosperous Anglo neighborhoods that knew something was wrong in our city to be stagnated and divided the way it was. And that was that story. In a way, that's a story of entrepreneurship. What's an entrepreneur? An entrepreneur sees a problem and rather than walking away, it just makes him crazy. <laughs> and they try to fix it. They don't always succeed at fixing it, but that's what they try to do. Well, it was, it was, I used that word to describe what I call entrepreneurial government. 
spontaneous, reacting to problems, focusing on solutions, not on traditional practices, doing what needed to be done. I, to this day, believe in that concept, using local government in entrepreneurial ways. So that had to have been kind of a foreign language for probably any city at that time. But the way you've already described San Antonio, I would. Yeah. How did you get people to come on your side on this? Well, I think mostly by finding problems, finding solutions, and then doing it often enough that people came to trust that there was something to it. I wasn't just a demagogue railing at the moon about problems, and I wasn't proposing things that had no chance to succeed. But I was doing the research, thanks to the training that I had, a doctorate at George Washington, a master's degree at Harvard, thanks to the training that I had. And by the way, in writing that doctoral dissertation, I surveyed cities across the country about their kind of economic development proposals. And what I found is it was being done. So when people said to me in San Antonio, it can't be done, that's not the logical role of government. That's a socialist idea. That's not free enterprise system as we know it in Texas. I knew that to be different. They just weren't right. You know, I had confidence that I'd seen it at work in other places. But that's a very current comment you just made about people accusing others of being socialist practice. Well, we, heard, we heard more than enough of that over the last uh, year. Or well, it wasn't that uncommon in Texas in the 1970s. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't gone away. But you're kind of raising the stakes. It's not just coming in as an activist mayor. It's coming into it in a place where there's real suspicion about anyone doing something like that because the free market well, is a free market. Let me tell you that there was a vast gulf between the needs in the poor communities and the willingness of the business community to address it. And there was a man named General Robert McDermott, who had been the dean of students at the Air Force Academy, who was recruited to San Antonio to head the very large insurance company here called USAA, which is the insurer of military personnel across the country. And he had a Harvard Business School degree in insurance. And he transformed the company. He got every award it's possible to have for creating a paperless company, for switching from five-day work week to four-day long days, and many, many other innovations. Harvard Business School cases, Harvard Business School review reports on his work. And he took a major role in the community. And he's one of the people who at the beginning called me a socialist. But by the end of my tenure as a council member, he was the one who encouraged me to run for mayor. And we collaborated daily for the eight years that I was mayor. It was not unusual at 1030 at night to get a call from him because he had just watched the evening news and was shocked by some problem in the city to call me and give me his take on how we ought to address it. So he was as entrepreneurial as it's possible to be running a company with 13,000 employees and a global footprint. And that's the way things change. You know, things that once are regarded in a certain way, when you frame them correctly and when you approach people with practical solutions instead of labels like what is properly conservative or what is liberal, radical, when you're talking about solutions, you can get somewhere. There's no, we used to say, there's no. Democratic or Republican, no liberal or conservative way to pick up the garbage or to redevelop a neighborhood or to. The one thing about local government is it focuses on the practical things that you can explain to people. Yeah, people know if it's working or it's not working. They just, they just exactly. know. Yeah. They can see it. Yeah. So you raise this issue about free enterprise and the philosophy in Texas. So not that long ago, of course, there was this incredible, scary storm in Texas, right? I was here. Past winter, and people died. So it was a terrible tragedy. 
But electricity prices went through the roof because of a free enterprise system. And, you know, I read so many articles about this. And depending on who was talking about it, the take was completely different. You'd hear conservatives saying, well, you know, these windmills don't actually work so well when the weather's bad. And you'd hear more liberal people say, well, you know, you have a 100% free enterprise system. There's no incentive for any of these electric utilities to have provided the insulation to make their facilities weather safe or to have backup systems. Is this an intractable problem in Texas in 2021? Can something happen after this? I don't think it's intractable. I think it can be addressed and I think it will be addressed. But the problem was, first of all, it was an incredibly cold period. Amarillo had one degree weather. Dallas had seven degree weather. Austin had eight degree weather. We had about 10 degree weather, maybe less. I heard one estimate of six. And it lasted for several days. The problem was not that the power wasn't available, but that it was in a context of this larger network called ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which unfortunately was a decision made in the 1990s to separate from the national grid in order to separate from regulations in the national grid. And that meant things like weatherization of pipes and water systems in the electrical generation process. And so ERCOT stepped in to allocate power. And they created this system of rolling brownouts because they just didn't have enough power. Didn't have enough power because gas lines froze out in the gas fields to get the gas in. Didn't have enough power because some of the fossil fuel plants froze. Didn't have enough power because, yes, the turbines on the wind stations froze. So they had to allocate. And when they did, they made some misjudgments, like cutting off power to water pumping stations. So now neighborhoods were both without power and without water Mm -hmm. because the water pumps had been turned off. Water went to zero in some homes, a trickle in others, froze in still others. The pipes broke when the weather was so cold for a number of days below freezing with water in the pipes. And so we had this catastrophe. Heads will roll. And it's unfortunate that This ERCOT system, which was originally created, I thought, as a good idea to share power in moments when power needed to be allocated from one area that didn't need it. Now, the problem was ERCOT is only Texas and all of Texas was subjected to the cold. So there was no place that didn't need the power. There's no hedging at all then. There can't be a hedge. Correct. And it was not hitched to the larger national system. So you had that problem. But ERCOT along the way had succumbed to the kind of deregulatory fever of the 1990s and beyond, which, as you remember, was rampant in California and caused some big problems there. But it was a deregulatory fever that resulted in their taking pleasure in raising prices for reduced fuel supplies. In other words, the supply-demand imbalance allowed them to raise prices and create an auction among utilities for the power. And people's utility bills went through the ceiling and continue to. This is a problem with a long tail. Utility bills are not in from that event three weeks ago yet. And I'm afraid this is going to continue. And there's a lot of people going to be making apologies for what happened. And are people going to have to pay those bills? I mean, many people won't be able to. Well, you're right. And there's a lot of discussion now about getting the state to step in and use its rainy day fund to help people. I've not seen the estimates of the amount of overpricing that went on. I think I saw one estimate at $16 billion, and I don't know that the state has that kind of money. 
But it's clearly unfair. I saw one gentleman on television who said he's got a utility bill that's roughly for electricity in the $120 range. And he understood that they were going to rise because of this. And so he had it fixed in his head that he would have a $300 or $400 bill until he got his check for $6,700. His bill for $6,700. His bill for $6,700. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I think that's an aberration. Something else was wrong in that case. But- People are not going to be prepared. But that pricing is artificial. You know what I mean? It's not that the power costs that much more. It's that they could. It's It's an economic model. That's right. It's the auction effect. So if they don't get fully paid, they're not going to lose anything, actually. I agree. I've had some people in the oil and gas business who have no sympathy because they know the practices who've said, just don't pay it. Make them sue you and prove that they deserve it. But, you know, in the business, we just wouldn't pay that bill. So you're mayor in San Antonio and you're making some waves and you're getting a national reputation. I'm interested in the phone call that came to you when, I don't know if it was President Clinton or who it was that said, Henry, I want you to come to Washington and work on my team. Well, I've been involved in national things for a long time. For example, I served on the Kissinger Commission on Central America in early 1980s when the problems of Nicaragua and Salvador were at their peak. So I worked my way to inclusion on large national subjects. And in 1984, Walter Mondale interviewed me as one of five people who he interviewed to become vice president of the United States. It was Michael Dukakis, Lloyd Benson, Wilson Goode, then the mayor of Philadelphia, and Diane Feinstein, then the mayor of San Francisco. None of us was selected. None of the five. <laughs> he went with Geraldine Ferraro. It was Geraldine Ferraro. That's right. <laughs> the first woman who was on the ticket, right? That's correct. That's correct. So I had been in and around national politics during the 80s. I met Bill Clinton along the way. San Antonio hosts about a thousand conventions a year, and many of them were inviting prominent and promising national figures. And Bill Clinton was a regular here. A couple of times I introduced him and he invited me to come to Arkansas in the late 80s to help them think through an Arkansas health policy. Hillary had been assigned that task in Arkansas to create health centers around the state. We'd done some work here in San Antonio. So we became friends. If you go to the Bill Clinton Rolodex, the FOB, Friends of Bill, my name was on that list. So I was asked eventually to come into the campaign and I was asked to be on the transition committee for preparing the administration. And then my friend Vernon Jordan, who just passed away, a great figure in American life, pulled me aside one day and said, what do you want to do in the cabinet? And I said, nothing. That's not my purpose. I didn't help for that reason. And he said, well, I know, but he's going to ask you and you better be ready. So I thought about it and I thought, If I ever was asked, it would have to be to do something that I really believe in. And though I had had no appreciation for HUD as mayor, I thought it was virtually useless appendage in the federal government. I could think of nothing that HUD did to help us during my years as mayor. I was called by Mayor Bradley of Los Angeles in the spring of 1992 before the election when you'll remember the Rodney King riots that resulted in the burning of South Central Los Angeles. And I went out there at his request to help calm the Latino community, which he was afraid would join in in the riots because the riots were coming toward the Latino neighborhoods. And he said, this is going to be really bad. So I joined Edward James Almos, a Hispanic movie star and other people. And we spent a few days there on the ground in Los Angeles. And so I had that memory when President Clinton did ask me, 
And I said, well, I care a lot about the cities. And even though this department has not been helpful, maybe it could be. And I'd be willing to do that. And he said, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> That's scary. When the, Are you crazy? You really want to do that? <laughs> exactly. That was exactly his tone of voice. Are you sure? <laughs> you sure that's what you want to do? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, then it's yours. <laughs> then it's yours. Uh, so how do you go about changing a gigantic bureaucracy like that, that, as you just described, did not have the best track record of success? No. Well, to me, the central point of logic was this. It's not about the department in Washington. It's not about the extended bureaucracy across the country. It's about how it appears on the ground. So we devised a philosophy, a strategy, which we called place-based. We matter if we matter in places. We matter if we make a difference on the ground, in public housing projects, on homeless initiatives in fair housing strategies, in the community. So we kind of flipped the organizational chart upside down. I'd had the privilege of speaking at Pepsi some years before and saw a very creative organizational chart. You as a business professor would understand this, but it took the organizational chart that's usually a pyramid with the very top of it is the point and then the base at the bottom is wide and flips it upside down. And it was a description for Pepsi of their priorities. So now the base is at the top and the point is at the bottom. And the base was, for Pepsi, the people who drive the trucks that put the Pepsi on the shelves in the stores. Those were the action elements of the Pepsi organizational chart. And everybody underneath that in this upside down pyramid, including the people at what ordinarily is the top of the pyramid, but now is the bottom, are in support of, are the base for are the people who stand behind the action people at the top. And I thought that's the organizational chart I want for HUD. And we kind of flipped the organizational chart and said the people who matter at HUD are the people who interface with the mayors and who interface with the local officials and the public housing authorities. And the rest of us are here to support them, get them the material they need, get them the funding they need, back them up with problem solving. But they're the soldiers. Right. This sounds like a radical way to do business turning the organization chart upside down. It's not radical. It's logical. I, it, I understand, I mean, but it's different than what just about anyone else does. Well, it's different because it's human nature to think top down, to think in terms of passing and delegating down through a hierarchy. But the whole point, the whole point is who has boots on the ground? Where does the rubber meet the road to use some cliches? And I think it's very useful when we do that. One of the most influential courses I ever took, just so you know, as a professor, that something you say might actually matter in people's lives. Rarely, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a book by a man named Anthony Downs called Inside Bureaucracy. And I studied it at George Washington during my doctoral studies. And his thesis essentially was, in bureaucracy, what is created are what he called the internalization of sub-goals. So you take goals like HUD meeting on the ground or Pepsi putting the stuff on the shelves, and the goals become internalized within the structure. So nobody's thinking about that end goal. They're thinking about internal sub goals like, what do I do for a promotion? Am I going to get a bonus this year? What do I do to replace a person that we just lost? What about this requirement that I have to write a manual on procedures, et cetera? But they're not thinking in terms of what did I do today to advance our purpose 
on the ground. So I don't think it's radical at all. It's just an interpretation of the way big organizations actually work. Did you get a lot of resistance from long-term people in the department? No, I don't know that people understood it fully. I think many might have understood it, but thought it was well-intentioned and naive. But literally, HUD had 10 districts across the country, 10 federal zones, if you will. And most of the cabinet agencies do. The heads of those were largely political appointees championed by the local U.S. senator or someone And they were a political plum job and they were given to somebody who really didn't know much about HUD. We insisted on former mayors and people who'd had experience. And then we empowered them. I used to have a Monday morning meeting with the HUD team, the 14 assistant secretaries, every Monday at 10 o'clock. Well, we quickly altered that meeting to include these 10 people out in the country and make them the focal point. And we changed their title from HUD district officer to secretary's representative. They were Washington's representative, the secretary's representative in their region of the nation. And they had say in what we did in Washington. Very interesting. You know, when I said it's a radical idea, I've actually written a little bit about the upside down organization. And I mean, it's radical because people don't think about it and it goes against conventional thinking, but it can make well, a and it, and it goes against human nature in some ways, because it's human nature to deal with that, which is immediately around you. And if you're in Washington, you're dealing with your daily. I mean, how many days have you worked hard an entire day and then you assess at the end of the day what you did and nothing of it touched the end objectives? It's actually a good exercise. I suggested something akin to that to people that I mentor or coach or even my students. And it could be a little depressing, so not everybody sticks with it. But at the end of the day, when you're walking somewhere where if you're in a car or something, just talk to your iPhone. Make it as easy as possible, right? And say, okay, here are the things that really went great today. Here are the accomplishments I have. And first of all, if you do that, it usually makes you feel better because you usually have done something. And if you really haven't, it's kind of difficult. Well, if you, if you haven't, you still can't. Yeah, of I have found out. I find out many times that when I ask that question at four o'clock and I don't have an answer, I spend the next hour from four until five o'clock making something happen. Pick up the phone, call somebody that you needed to that moved something or set in motion something that you needed to do. I think that's a way to kind of make every day matter. <laughs> yeah, I like that because you're giving yourself some time in the clock. It's not the end of the game. You're just entering the fourth quarter and you have a chance. I can tell you, I can't tell you the number of times, Professor, where I went home at the end of the day, and the saving grace was what I was able to accomplish in that last hour, and I felt I'd had a good day. Yeah. One of the other podcasts in season three is with someone named Michael Ainsley, who was the CEO of Sotheby's, and actually he was on the board of directors of Lehman in 2008 when that imploded. Very smart, very talented person. We talked about his business career a lot, but what he really wanted to talk about is this organization called Posse that he's worked and volunteered for, which is where a group of six to 10 high school students become a Posse together where they all go to the same university. So they have automatically a peer network, a friend network, a comfort level. And Mm -hmm. uh, he said, you know, the way I measure every one of my days is whether I've helped someone, even if it's a little thing, every single day. Absolutely. It really gets down to first principles. So I'm curious about cabinet meetings. What happens? We see them on TV, right? We see the photo op, but what actually uh, happens in cabinet meetings? Well, I think it varies from administration to administration. I think Bill Clinton and Al Gore recognized there wasn't many issues you needed to take to the whole cabinet because the federal government is, and the issues that confront it are pretty compartmentalized. So if you're talking about a problem of European currency issues, You don't need the Secretary of HUD in that. You need the State Department and you need Treasury in that meeting. So there were a lot of pods 
of cabinet groups that dealt with problems. And cabinet meetings were more or less for more kind of overarching ceremonial things or the biggest picture things like mm-hmm. finalization of the budget or items of that nature. In the Clinton administration, they gave a lot of latitude to the cabinet members to run their departments. Not every administration does that. Some of them want to be in control and have mechanisms in the White House for making the cabinet members, in effect, subordinate in a real way. In our case, the president was, he understood what we were trying to do, and he was very hands-off. I think I got maybe one or two calls in a four-year time asking me to do some specific thing that they wanted accomplished. But for the most part, I was able to run the department, and the president was very pleased with what we did. I was fortunate in that the president and I had been friends and he respected my political instincts. So he included me in a group that met at the White House on Wednesday evenings, beginning at eight o'clock. And it would frequently run until midnight or one o'clock. And its purpose was to make sense of the political environment and look at policy from the perspective of how does it match where we stand politically in the country. And that was in some senses, apart from what I did substantively at HUD, that was the most exciting and fulfilling thing that I did in those four years was to be present when some of these questions were being resolved. But in terms of the department and its work, I prioritized homelessness because someone had told me the day of my confirmation, Mr. Secretary, if you're going to be the head of the department whose name starts with the word housing, your first obligation needs to be to those people who are completely unhoused. That made sense to me. It was kind of a moral call. We prioritized homelessness. We prioritized the horrible state of public housing. And we're very fortunate on our watch to implement a program called Hope 6 that transformed 250 major housing developments across America. Cabrini Green, to name one famous one, and others. Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all across the country, tear down the 1930s, 1940s era public housing developments and replace them with things that are livable. We spent a lot of time on home ownership. The home ownership rate by the end of our term and the subsequent Clinton term rose to the highest it had ever been in American history. Now, we know that that was later hijacked by the mortgage industry and ended up in the critical housing crisis of 2006, 7, 8 that brought the economy to its knees. But Home ownership, I concluded, was a way to get people to the middle class. For most people, the biggest investment they make in their life is the mortgage that they have on their house. And it becomes a device that when you pay it out, gives you, for the first time, net worth. For the first time, you have economic flexibility you can call wealth when you own your home. So that was the interplay between the policy stuff and then the political White House obligations. So let me ask you a little bit about some of the personalities and leadership approach. You were there, so you saw Bill Clinton. I presume you saw Hillary to some extent as well. And so maybe starting with Bill and then next to Hillary. And I should ask you whether you had any interaction. President Biden was a senator at that time, I think, wasn't he? Not much interaction with, yes, I did because I was active in the East Coast, uh, Maryland and Delaware projects, Wilmington. But it was just to that extent. I did work closely with the president. He's one of the smartest, quickest policy minds that I will ever meet. I could take him something that I thought was complex for me 
and thought I'd have to break it down for him to present it to get an answer. And he got it like that. <laughs> he just was able to frame it in a simple, straightforward, logical, coherent way. We had a session on home ownership once, and I laid out a kind of logic that I had been laying out to myself on home ownership. As we were approaching the stage where he was going to speak, he listened intently to me for a few minutes, and then he got up, delivered it as I had envisioned it, and went a step further than that and put new ideas into it on his feet with no preparation or notes. Yeah. <laughs> you see, that type of talent you do see. I think President Obama had that talent. And I just finished reading another book on FDR, actually the first uh, 100 days, because, you know, Biden's first 100 days have just passed. And, and the thing that made FDR, many things made FDR stand out, but in particular, in contrast to his predecessor, Herbert Hoover, is he just knew, you know, today we call it emotional intelligence. He knew how to communicate to people. He was, it's not that he wasn't tough. He could be as tough as, and even ruthless if he needed to be, but he just, and he did those fireside chats. He was also very courageous. There was a lot of things in that first hundred days that he didn't know, could not be sure would mm -hmm. work, but he knew uh, something had to be done and he'd bet the farm. That's right. And so it's interesting, the, the kind of the personality, this aspect of leadership that is, I don't want to call it charisma because that word you know, can go in the wrong direction easily, but just liking people maybe is a big part of it, right? Yes. Liking people is a big part of it. And Bill Clinton was famous for drawing energy from other people. There are some people who spend energy in their relationships with people and are exhausted at the end of the process. They can't do it for very long because it tires them, right? Yeah. But then there's people who take energy from it and are enhanced by right. the hour they just spent. It's, and that was uh, Bill Clinton. But I don't think yeah. that's the key skill. I think it's more connecting the dots. It's more taking disparate facts and then being able to draw threads and combinations that you could call the process of creativity, creativity in fashioning solutions. You have to listen very hard, almost like supernatural concentration to listen to what people are actually saying, not the words necessarily, but what they mean, and then connect them and connect them with some facts and things you know, and bam, boom, there's an answer. There's a solution. I think Bill Clinton was very good at that. So did you have much interaction with Hillary Clinton at that time? I did. I did. And she's not the same kind of person, intelligence or, or, or same kind of intelligence. She's just as intelligent, but he says she's the smartest person he's ever met, but she was different. He was like flowing hot caramel, just flow. And she was a little bit more with sharper edges to yeah. her, her, her way That's of thinking. Crazy. We've seen that on the national stage subsequent to your time. And it's hurt her because she's been the smartest person in the room many times and didn't get that top job. And I think it was more, I mean, I just have to feel it's a personality presence type of thing. Yeah, but I think she cared very deeply and would have made a good president because she would have had the right person to forge the right answer and make the connections that, you know, that had to be made. So, you know, in, this, uh, in the most recent election, Georgia turned blue. And everybody's talking about Texas and that people have been talking about Texas for a long time that it's turning blue, it's turning blue. What do you think? You know, the demographics are the demographics, but it's still been very conservative in terms Yeah, of I don't think Texas is going to be blue anytime soon and maybe not even purple because two things. One, the influx of people, which is very rapid, still the fastest growing state in the country. We have major companies coming. But think about it. Who's coming? 
It's people who are dissatisfied and escaping conditions in other states, which they regard as too progressive. They're leaving California because the taxes are high or because the environmental regulations are stiff or because it's hard to start a small business. And they're coming from other states as well, where they regard them as failed. The economy of Michigan at one point, they were selling the Houston Post in Detroit so people could read the one ads on Sundays. They had a, a truck would drive up to distribute the Houston Post in Detroit so people could read the one ads. So the point is, people come with the faith of the convert. When they arrive, they basically say, I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm not going to be in a place where I let that happen. So you end up with a very conservative block. And then secondly, the Hispanic community has long been viewed as the saving card for Democrats that eventually, because Latinos vote heavily Democratic, that they will grow and they're growing faster than the average. That will change the state. But what's happening, as we saw in this last election, where some of the poorest counties in the state voted, if not in majorities, then split their vote for Trump. And the reason, I think, is because a lot of them are small business people. A lot of them are hunters and pro-gun. A lot of them are evangelicals. Their faith has become evangelical from Catholic. And so a mix of things results in the Latino community not being the ingredient that's going to turn Texas blue. It is beginning to split. I think a lot of people don't really understand that the Hispanic community is not one monolith where everyone is the same. Uh, I rode in a car with President Reagan once when he came, he visited San Antonio, it was just he and I in the car. And he said, Henry, how could I persuade you that you ought to come into the Republican Party? And I said, well, Mr. President, I don't, I grew up in the shadow of Franklin Roosevelt and I just don't think that's going to happen. My grandfather would behead me. And he said, well, let me tell you about Hispanics. He said, I've been around Hispanics my whole life in California, and they are Republicans and just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking about family values and faith and hard work and small business strategies. And so he said, they're Republicans and don't know it. <laughs> so it does sound like the way Ronald Reagan had the emotional intelligence. He's another one yeah. of those people, right? Yeah. You know, we have such a polarized country. I mean, COVID has brought it out, but the elections have brought it out. And is this what it's going to be like for the next decade, decades to come? I mean, what well, there's, we a, there's a lot of factors at work, Professor, that take us in that direction. And it's not just our politics. I think the most critical is the atomization of our news sources so that, you know, there's no longer broadcasting. There's narrow casting and people listen to what they want to listen to. And that's reinforced with the messages that they receive, which in turn are reinforced by the rewards to the narrow casters that they can dominate a particular spectrum of the constituency and make money off of that by selling goods and services that way. And it's tragic because we're not getting unifying messages. We're not getting truth in sense of a larger truth. We're getting a sliver of the truth from depending on which medium we listen to. I think that's a big problem. Now you add to that then the anger from decades of lowering wages, of downsizing and outsourcing jobs and whole parts of the country that are bereft of any economic lift. The demographic change has people frightened. You put all that in the mix, it's a pretty serious and difficult brew. Yeah, that's not a particularly encouraging thought. But I do know that, you know, in different eras, people see where this country is at or the world is at. And it's hard to imagine ever breaking out of it, but it changes. Well, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I'm an optimistic person. And I believe that is possible. In fact, I actually have believed that one of the key ingredients is leadership. When you have leadership that is preaching segmentation and division, then that's what you get. 
When you have leadership that is working very hard to bring people together, you can move the needle and bring people to their higher instincts, the better angels that President Lincoln talked about. But I don't know that we've ever done that in a world with these other forces unleashed, the media forces, the global forces, the economic forces that have people right on the edge of being angry all the time. Now, people are angry all the time. You can talk them back from the edge if you try, if you work at it. But if you don't, then the base condition is angry all the time. Yeah. And that's kind of how we end up where we end up. We're just about out of time. So let me ask you the last question, which is kind of an advice question. If you could magically transport yourself back in time to when you were, say, 21 years old, and you could kind of lean over to the 21-year-old Henry Cisneros and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know about the world, if there's one thing you want to know about yourself or about life, if it's one thing you should do or you shouldn't do, it's kind of like asking, what is it you wish you knew back then that you know now that others can benefit? What would that be? Well, I think it would be learn all you can and keep an open mind. Think well of the world and other people and let their ideas get into your world and ferment and you'll be a better person for it. You'll be a happier person. You'll be a unifier. You'll be a person who brings people within your rubric and they're better for it. It'll make you more positive in your approach to things, but really work hard at it. That means read and study and listen and really listen. I'm very much an optimist that those are the values by which we can live. I used to tell my son, I took him to school in the mornings and as he got off the car, we kind of fist bumped and I said, make every moment count, son. And his response was, for the joy of knowledge. So the combination, make every moment count for the joy of knowledge, not for the wealth, not for the accomplishments, not for the popularity, but for the joy itself of knowledge. That's beautiful. I love that. As an educator, I absolutely love that. But as a person, has been my philosophy as well. Secretary Henry Cisneros, thank you so much for spending time with me and all of our listeners on the SIDCast. The hour has flown by. It's been really, really interesting. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor. And thank you for doing what you're doing with your life and with your podcast. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.